What makes Asbury distinctive? There are multiple answers to that question. One visitor saw the brick buildings here amidst green lawns and trees and called it the Harvard of Kentucky. But there's more to Asbury than that. Today, we'll talk about Asbury's Wesleyan holiness tradition and theology in language that all of us can understand. I would just say it's this massive, very, very beautiful vision that the triune God whose nature is holy love creates us for the purpose of sharing that love and then reaches down and changes us, comes to us in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast from Asbury University. This is part one of our two-part discussion on Wesleyan theology. For today's episode, Asbury President Dr. Kevin Brown has an energizing discussion with Asbury theology professor Dr. Thomas McCall. The two talk about Wesleyan theology and what it is, how it differs from other theologies, and why it matters today. Here's that interview. Well, I am very excited today to be joined by Dr. Tom McCall. And Dr. McCall started with us this last year. I'll give him a a moment to sketch a bit of his background, but not just to talk to Tom, but to talk to Tom about Wesleyan theology. And on my best day, I have a theological imagination, but Tom is actually a theologian, so he he's the real deal. So I'm excited about the discussion that we are going to have. But before we get into that discussion, Tom, would you be willing to share a bit about yourself, your background, for folks who don't know you? So I was raised in a parsonage. My dad was a pastor until he passed away. He actually died of H1N1 11 years ago, so mm-hmm. a different pandemic took him. So my dad was a pastor, Wesleyan Church in the Northwest, a lot of Idaho and Montana, one church in Idaho for almost 20 years. I pastored churches in South Central Alaska in Southwestern Michigan, did a uh, seminary degree at Wesley Biblical Seminary and a PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary. I'm married to Jenny, who's a middle school science teacher, four kids. Cole's a college sophomore, Josiah is a college freshman, Maddie is a high school junior, and Isaac is an eighth grader. Fantastic. Well, today we are talking about what is Wesleyan theology and why does it matter today? So big question, but I I was wondering if we could start there. What is Wesleyan theology and why might it matter for us today? Well, in a sort of descriptive sense, I mean, at one level, you could just say Wesleyan theology is sort of theology of the house and lineage of Wesley. It has some connection to do with this evangelist, sort of of jack-of-all-trades in some ways, Anglican church leader named John Wesley. That is sort of a historical descriptor, but I think theologically, there's a whole lot we can say, and maybe we'll say some of it here today. But I, if I were going to boil it down sort of to a, a phrase, I would just say it's this massive, very, very beautiful vision that the triune God whose nature is holy love creates us for the purpose of sharing that love, and then reaches down and changes us, comes to us in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, with us the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit, to make us where we can receive that love, know that love, and begin to share that holy love with God, with the trained God, but also with others. And that's a massive vision. To me, it's a beautiful vision. To me, that's at the core of what Wesleyan theology is. Yes, well said. That is beautiful. What are some distinctions between Wesleyan theology and more Reformed or what we might call Calvinistic theology? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's one I've thought about a fair bit. So I think what we could say is, I just want to say first, and this isn't exactly your question, but I want to to emphasize this. 
is that there is so much common ground. And yes. I don't want the differences to in any sense obscure or push us to lose sight of the the common ground, which is really broad and very deep and I think very sacred. And so I view Wesleyan theology as Catholic, not in the sense of being Roman, but in the sense of being part of the church universal and part of the, we have a theological inheritance that goes all the way back. It's ours by inheritance too. It's encapsulated in the creeds. It's inscribed in these great creedal and confessional statements. Ours is the Trinitarian faith too. We also believe the Creed of Nicaea and the Constantinopolitan formula and the Chalcedonian formula. Those are our creeds too. So we have this broad, deep foundational agreement with other Christian groups. We're also Protestant. That is our heritage, descriptively, just historically, but it's something I think we should own and affirm and be grateful for as well. And so we share this great Protestant heritage with other parts of the Reformation family. And we are also evangelical in the sense of being focused on Jesus Christ, excited about mission, excited about doing good works in the world. So evangelical in all of these senses of conversion and being focused on Christ and the importance of mission and evangelism, all of these ways, we, we share all this in common. But there are some differences, some distinctions. So one of the sort of tools that's used to sort of draw out these differences, many Reformed theologians sort of have a problem with this as a really good description, but most will understand it has a, a way of sort of being a tool to help us learn. And so the TULIP stands for total depravity. That speaks to the human condition of sin, unconditional election, that is a precise doctrine of predestination, limited atonement, that is Christ died only for those who are elect or predestined to be saved, irresistible grace, that is if you are a part of this elect group, God's grace will work for you and at the end of the day won't be able to be resisted. And then perseverance of the saints, that is again, if you are part of this elect group, if you're predestined, it is going to work for you. There's just no other way around it. And there's, so there's no possibility that it won't. So when we think about Wesleyanism in relation to this, uh, it's a well-documented but not well-known fact that historic Wesleyanism agrees on the doctrine of total depravity. You may not always use the phrase. Not all Reformed people like the phrase either. But the basic contention is correct. And in many cases, historic Wesleyan theologians have, without blinking, have just affirmed total depravity. The point is not to say we're as bad as we could be. It's that all humans and all parts of our humanity are warped by sin. And to the extent that we cannot either save ourselves or even begin to do so apart from grace. Wesleyans are with the Reformed on this. So Wesley wrote his longest, densest treatise. is actually a book on original sin that came out about six months before a book of the same title by Jonathan Edwards. What's interesting is that the people that Edwards, the great Calvinist, criticizes in his book, Wesley criticizes most of the same people by name. And Wesley actually ends up defending the Westminster Confession of Faith statement on original sin, which is sort of the classic reform document. So on that, there's no difference. Where we're going to differ, it's unfortunate that we do, but we just do, is on the rest of the, the tulip. Unconditional election, this doctrine of predestination that God predestines before the foundation of the world, who will and who won't be with God in heaven and be saved. Wesleyans just take a different view of that. And we can talk about this, obviously, of course, but we think we have good reasons to do so. Yes. This notion that Christ died only for the elect, well, it looks to us like Scripture teaches otherwise. And it looks to us like the great Christian tradition, largely, not in all cases, but largely teaches otherwise. So where we disagree, we tend to think that, naturally enough, that Scripture supports our side of things more. 
But also, we tend to think that there's a deep traditional basis and that the Reformed tend to be the innovators on this. The Reformed tend to depart from the great tradition on most of these points. Uh, It's really well said. And I appreciate your opening with where is their overlap. It is interesting when we think about really any label, whether it's a theology, whether it's a philosophy, whether it's a category of, of individuals that subscribe to one of those, we define them by who they are not. I've been in some church circles where the world will be set right when we can just get rid of all this Calvinist yeah. thinking. And I think in my mind, there are some people I'd be thrilled if they were Calvinists. Yeah, uh, yeah let's start there. And then, uh, then we can think about what are some of these theological differences. And that's not to delegitimize the differences. They matter. They do uh, matter. They matter enough that we should take them seriously. Yes. And I don't think that we, we don't do anyone any favors by pretending they're not there. Sometimes I think we are talking past one another, and there's a lot more common ground than we had thought. But other in other places, there just is genuine difference. Now, you say you've been in places where you wish. I've been in places the last, I've spent most last 20 years in places where people were thinking something more along the lines of, it'd be great if we could get rid of all the non-Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in those places where that's probably been more likely. And I also want to say that my time in Reformed and sort of broadly quasi-Reformed circles, it's done two things for me. In one sense, it's deepened my appreciation, my genuine appreciation for the theological strengths of the Reformed tradition. I'm very grateful for my exposure. They've helped me be a better theologian. My appreciation has gone so much deeper than it ever had been and continues to deepen. On the other hand, they've, they've actually made me more unreservedly Wesleyan. Something that I've picked up on, this isn't from, you know, some Barna survey or anything like that, but I have heard the expression, look, why do we need to focus on these differences? Why can't we love Jesus Christ and follow him and whatever else you believe, whatever, let's just follow Jesus? I'd be curious, how would you respond to a person like that that says, ah, let's not pay attention to that stuff, let's just focus on Jesus? At a deep level, I just want to affirm that. Let's belong to Jesus. Let's love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves. Let's focus on love of Jesus in our lives, in our world, the love of Jesus for us, and the love of Jesus extended through us. Absolutely. So part of me just says a really big, hearty amen to that, and I mean that. On the other hand, one can hardly just say, let's focus on Jesus and not do theology. As soon as you say that, you're doing theology. As soon as you ask, who is Jesus? And then as soon as you start to answer that question, you're asking and answering theological concerns. When you start saying, talking about loving Jesus, receiving Jesus's love and extending Jesus's love for the world, that is going to open up these other questions. What's the world? Does that just speak just to the bigness? Well, is all the bigness included in the love? Does it refer to the badness? Because, of course, like in Johannine, you know, John's, especially the way Gospel of John talks about the world, the world really isn't just about the bigness. It's also a way of referring to the badness. So if we, when we say God's love for the world or Christ's love for the world, well, are we talking about just the bigness or are we talking about the badness, right? So you, get, right. you just get all these sort of questions start to come up as soon as you start to unpack even the simple statements. C.S. Lewis has this great vision of mere Christianity. It's a good book by the title, but behind the book, there's this great vision. And I I affirm that. I mean, I want to affirm the mere Christian commitments that I share with Roman Catholic and Lutheran and Orthodox and Reformed brothers and sisters. 
thankful for them, thankful for their work. But we shouldn't misunderstand what Lewis was saying. Lewis never thinks that we can settle with mere Christianity, like as if that's enough. Lewis refers to it as the hallway in the house. There are different rooms in the house. And he says, you can't live in the hallway forever. You meet in the hallway. The hallway is important, but a lot of your actual living goes on in your room. And so I think I'm going to serve the Lord and serve the people to whom the Lord is, has given me, right? I mean, the people to whom I belong. I'm going to serve us better if I actually live in a room and live with people in the room. And yes, the great hall is important, and we affirm the sort of mere Christian commitments, but that's just not going to be enough. And the more you sort of drill down and asking the sort of what seem to be the really innocent, super basic affirmations, as soon as you start to unpack those, the other theological questions come up. Yeah, Chesterton said something similar, paraphrasing him, that an open mind is like an open mouth. It eventually will close onto something. An open mind is not an end, it's a means to some kind of end. I knew someone, they attended a pretty progressive mainline church, and they were part of a committee to come up with a mission statement. And they started this process, and anytime you define yourself you inevitably draw some kind of line that will exclude someone that doesn't fall under the definition, so to speak. And so it was, well, is it just scripture that's authoritative or are there other forms of authority? And what would my Muslim brothers and sisters say to this particular comment? So it was all done out of a kind of good, equitable intention, but this just went on and on. And I asked my friend, well, what happened? And she said, oh, we stopped. We just gave up because we could not land on something that did not potentially exclude someone else. So when you're so vague so as to include everyone and accommodate all identities, the irony is you forego an identity. And so I really like that idea of the hallway and the rooms on where we arrive. When we talk about Wesley, we talk about the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral and this was built, this is not a, a, an expression he used. Albert Outler used it, presumably off the Anglican triad. This epistemological method, if you will, of, of arriving on theological truth. And I was wondering if you could say something about that. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. And I'll try to say two things and keep it brief. The first one, just historically, and then more theologically, okay? Historically, as you've just pointed out, this wasn't Wesley's phrase. It wasn't Wesley's formulation. And it's sort of a later invention as a way to understand sort of a Wesley and broadly understood way of thinking about things. So that's just a historical point, that it wasn't Wesley's own statement and it wasn't even his formulation. There's something to be said for it and that's something I think that we should all appreciate, that it's really, really hard to have reason without a tradition, and it's hard to have tradition without rationality. It's not even four separate things, per se, right. I mean, that these are bound together. But historically, for Wesleyans, as for other Protestants, and for many Christians generally, Scripture is authoritative in ways that the others aren't. So if we talk about a quadrilateral, like Scripture and reason and tradition and experience are all equal or roughly equal, if we do that, I think we're going to run into some theological problems. To bounce back to the historical point for a moment, we're really misunderstanding and misrepresenting the historic Wesleyan position. There was not any such thing as four roughly equal or equal views or equal sources of authority. There's scripture, and then there's tradition as a helpful way of interpreting scripture. Reason is an important, actually, it's an essential part of the process. 
An experience, of course, is not to be shied away from, it's to be lived into, but it should be experience that brings to life the truths that we learn in Scripture, not something added to it or in conflict with it, or somehow you can maybe take some sort of vote and say, well, I ran this through the quadrilateral. Actually, I've heard this statement. Uh, Ethical issue X comes up, and someone said, I ran it through the quadrilateral, and your view loses two to one to zero. And I think as far as, you know, to move into sort of um, epistemology of theology or uh, philosophy of religion kind of topics, William J. Abraham, I think, has done a really good job of showing it's an epistemological disaster. Like, this just won't work for a whole range of reasons. So, it, again, to summarize, at one level, I, I want to affirm, obviously, Scripture is authoritative. I deeply appreciate the Christian tradition. I think we should do our theology through the tradition, appreciative of it, grateful for it, even respectful of the parts with which we might disagree. So, tradition, yes, thumbs up, deeply grateful for the Christian tradition. Reason, it's indispensable. I mean, part of my own work over the last uh, 15 years or so has been in something called analytic theology, mm. which tries to bring together the and really use the resources of cutting-edge work in epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics for Christian doctrine. It's the use yes. of logic. I think that's all to be affirmed and all to be appreciated. And of course, religious experience, I mean, it's a source of insight for us. We should be deeply, deeply grateful for what we can learn from this. And we shouldn't shy away from it or be embarrassed of it, but we should lean into it and appreciate it. On the other hand, though, to use this as sort of a, a wooden tool is just going to produce problems, and historically, it's it's just um, it's misleading. Yeah, and the, this idea of epistemology is how we understand understanding or or the the nature of belief, and it's always struck me as interesting. In Luke ten, Jesus is approached by an expert of the law, a lawyer. What do I have to do to uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? How do you read it? And I always thought Jesus didn't just simply say, what does scripture say? Or what do you read in that book? But he follows with this important, how do you interpret what's in that? And then later, after the expert of the law gives the answer, Jesus says, you interpreted correctly, which implies there's an incorrect way of interpreting that. It's a simple point, but it's really important. I, I'm thinking of the bumper sticker that says, God said it. I believe it, that settles it. And we look at that and say, no, it doesn't settle it uh, because we have to interpret. And what are the tools by which we can responsibly interpret something in a way that reflects reality? And so when we talk about the quadrilateral, this is just indeed one of these tools. It's a really helpful tool, a set of helpful tools. The Christian tradition is a, is a, is a wonderful set of resources for which we should be grateful. Even where we think that parts of the tradition may have erred, we can learn from those, even the mistakes that have been made. But on the whole, it's such a great repository, just this great mine, and we don't have to reinvent the world. I remember uh, studying to be a pastor, first year of seminary, first semester of seminary. It sounds silly to say it, but it's true. This great sense of relief that just washed over me when I realized most of this work had been done. I could live into and be part of this great company of saints, the, of brilliant, godly people who had come before, who had done so much of this for me. I could benefit from that yes. and live into that and be part of that. And this great sense of belonging, but also a sense of relief just sort of washed over me. And I view that as our heritage, as our gift. 
And again, as I said earlier about reason, there's nothing to be afraid of. Logic is our friend. It's a gift from our Lord, right? We should use it. And religious experience, as we offer, we receive insights, but also confirmation of things through religious experience. Nothing to be worried about. I mean, there's no no reason for fear. There's reason for great joy in using these tools. You mentioned grace earlier, and this obviously is important to Wesleyan theology. Could you talk a bit about grace and, yeah, the theology of Wesley? So, earlier, you know, you're talking about sort of what is at the core of Wesleyan theology. One of the things Wesley said about it when he was asked this, this sort of question uh, is he just says, it's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It's simple, but it's also incredibly deep and broad. Wesleyanism, in my view, Wesleyan theology has a optimistic view of grace. It's off. This is sometimes confused, and this is a place where sometimes the critics of Wesleyan theology just, I think, just don't get it. Sometimes they they criticize us where they do understand, and we just disagree. But this is one of the places where I think there's often misunderstanding. People take this to be sort of an optimism about human nature that we just think we're not really all that bad, and that we can make ourselves perfect if we try hard enough. And sometimes we, you know, convince ourselves that we are, and then we're insufferable to be around. Maybe sometimes Wesleyans think that's the the goal too, but it isn't. The point is, is that we are corrupt sinners. And as I said earlier, I mean, Wesley's longest, densest work in his entire body of writings is on the doctrine of original sin. And he says, to deny it, he says, you are but a heathen still, is it one of his mm, phrases. Mm. And the point is, is that we are utterly incapable, not only of fixing ourselves, but even of taking the first step toward that. So the disagreement is not about, do we need grace? But there is an emphasis in the Western tradition, which I think is correct, but also I think is so powerful and, and brings hope. It's not just that we need grace, it's that God actually wants to give it, that God delights in giving it, that God desires us to receive it, and then enables us to receive what we couldn't on our own. And so this is what is sometimes historically called the prevenience of grace, which is an, at least all the way back to Ambrose and Augustine in the in the early church, this notion of the provenience of grace, that is, that it must come before, that it must enable us even to respond. And that this grace then, though, is actually intended for us, available to us, and efficacious in changing us. That is, it Mm -hmm. actually changes our lives. It doesn't just change our legal status, but it begins to change us from the core of our being out so that we are then enabled truly to love the Lord our God and truly to begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. Back to Luke 10, as you just said, what's the first commandment that is the question put to Jesus, right? What's the first and greatest commandment? He says, Jesus answers with a question that, you know, with an, gives an answer to the question that obviously the lawyer trying to trick him should have known. And he tells him what's true, right? Puts it back on him. And it's so direct. And yet he walks away with his head down because he does this seeking the, Luke 10 tells us specifically, Seeking to justify himself is the motive. The narrator says the motive of the lawyer who comes to try to trap Jesus is he's seeking to justify himself. And the the consistent biblical message, and Wesley, not all Wesleyans, I'm afraid, have hit the same note as well as we should have. Wesley did get this. We cannot justify ourselves. That it's God's grace in Christ that justifies us. That God's grace in Christ that changes, that acquits us of the charges against us. But it goes beyond that and not only justifies us, but brings us to the point of love of God and love of neighbor. 
So you mentioned the intention of the um, the lawyer's heart, seeking to justify himself. This actually gets at another very important dimension of Wesley's theology, and that's the heart holiness. And there are different ways to describe this. A lot of modern Enlightenment philosophers were seeking to answer this question about what makes a human distinct, and we exercise these rational faculties different from animals and whatnot. Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and this, this penchant towards knowability. But it seems like for Wesley, the center of gravity of a human is not what's kind of bouncing around their, their mind and their intellect, but rather their heart, the uh, cardia, and uh, almost like appetite bowels. So could you speak to this a bit, this Wesleyan idea that maybe, maybe our humanity is not so much constituted by what we think or our capacity for rationalization beyond other species, but what we love and what we orient ourselves toward? So, yes, you're right. There's been a, a search on for a long time was in Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thought for sort of to understand the human, understand what it means to call someone a person or a self. A lot of the emphasis has gone toward autonomy, and a lot of the emphasis has gone toward just short, sort of sheer rationality. And that has obvious, well, it has downsides that are becoming more obvious probably all the time as we're sort of living in a world that where we're seeing sort of autonomy and rationality prized and then isolated almost. That happens in a world that's simultaneously craving for relationality, and we're craving to belong. Autonomy has gone to isolation now. And rationality now, we think, well, if we could just, if we could figure out how to do the transhumanism thing better, right, we could surpass our humanity and we could be, we could be um, better thinking machines. All of these, you're right. All of these are, this is the world in which Wesley lived in some sense. It's certainly in, maybe in broader ways, the world in which we live now. Autonomy and rationality are prized as sort of, as sort of there's an ultimacy to those. And I think that with Wesley and with a great deal of the Christian tradition, it's not that rationality doesn't matter, nor is it even that there's no sense, no proper theological accounting for a kind of autonomy. But that is not the point. The point is that we are made to be known and made to be loved, made to receive love, made to give that love. And so, yeah, it's not that rationality doesn't matter. Of course it does, but there's no sense of ultimacy to it. I think for Wesley and for a great part of the, the, I mean, he's just living into the Christian tradition on this, we are made to to belong. We are made to relate. We are made for love. Yeah, that's really well said. I I heard one author say, we are doxological beings, uh, which I like that. And Augustine famously writes that, my weight is my love. And just like the weight of a rock will make it roll down the side of a hill, our weight we follow that weight. But the difference between us and a rock is that we can actually direct our loves in ways that a rock couldn't or smoke from a fire couldn't direct itself. And we hear Augustine say in Confessions, you made us for yourself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in you. And so there's a a directionality that's kind of baked in to uh, what it means to be a person. And we're discovering that fulfillment and that gratification when we give ourselves over to that which we were made to love. In fact, Augustine's definition of virtue is ordered love rightly ordered affections. Not no affections or no desire, but desiring, pursuing, giving yourself towards that which is truly ultimate. We hope you enjoyed today's interview. 
Be sure to join us again next month for part two of Dr. Brown and Dr. McCall's discussion on Wesleyan theology. That's coming up on Belonging and Becoming, a production of Asbury University. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please write us at belong at asbury.edu.